Thanks for checking out this week's message. I hope that it's helpful for you wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Here at Restore, we are a place where anyone can have a seat at the table and everyone can experience the extravagant love of Jesus. So I hope you walk away from this message knowing that you are deeply loved by God and that you can be fully loved by a church community. And if you don't have that, we would love to connect with you here at Restore. You can go to restoreaustin.org to find out more. You know, I first started getting kicked out of things uh, when I was five years old. I remember like it was yesterday, I was in a kindergarten Sunday school class at my childhood church when it happened. Now, I don't recall all of the details around the exact event. Maybe I took a little more than my share of the goldfish that day, snuck an extra juice box. That would be very on brand for me. I don't know. All I remember is that a kid named Caleb called me fat, and I tackled him into a table. That's what happened. The teacher, who was also my mother, (laughs) tried to break it up as quickly as she could. But the Sunday school director heard the commotion and came running. uh, And when she came into the room, I was still on top of Caleb. They called my punishment a temporary suspension. But I'm pretty sure there wouldn't have been anything temporary about it had my mom not threatened to quit teaching Sunday school unless they allowed me back into her class. That was the first time I got kicked out of something, but... Certainly not the last. Been kicked out of private schools, off sports teams. I got kicked out of my youth group when I was in seventh grade. I've talked about that up here before. Our church even got kicked out of a denomination five years ago. That's a great story. I can tell you some other time. Now, listen, some of these were my fault, really. I still owe Caleb an apology. Caleb, if you're watching this, I'm very sorry. (laughs) But you shouldn't have said that. That was rude. But some weren't my fault, right? I got kicked out of my youth group for asking too many questions, you know? Restore got kicked out of our denomination for fully including our LGBTQ plus siblings. When I share these stories, most people usually laugh or sometimes they even cheer. I know a lot of y'all that were around during the denominational thing and you kind of still wear it like a badge of honor and I get that. But the truth is, getting kicked out of things is painful because humans were not built for rejection I don't know anyone who hasn't had to endure it, you know? Now, you may not have been kicked out of a Sunday school class, but I bet you've been rejected by someone close to you, or maybe pushed out of a space that you thought was safe. Sometimes this happens because of who we are. Sometimes it happens because of something we've done. Other times, there doesn't seem to be any logical reason behind it at all, but no matter how or why it happens, it always, always hurts. Rejection is painful because we were created for connection. We were made by God for deep relationships with God and with each other. So when those connections break, even if it's by our own doing, it hurts. But here's what I want us to see this morning. Our God is not a God of rejection. Our God is a God of radical acceptance. Now listen, if that sounds wrong or or just really different from what you've heard, I want you to just stay with me for a few minutes as we dive into the story today. But I want to start by reminding you of the story of Adam and Eve. Do you remember it from the very beginning of the Bible? They decide to reject God by disobeying his one rule, eating the forbidden fruit. And then when God confronts them, eager to restore the brokenness caused by their decision, what do Adam and Eve do? They start lying. They start blaming each other. 
So God allows them to go their own way. They leave the garden. They have to face the consequences of those decisions. But here's the most important part of that story. God does not stop pursuing them with his relentless love. In fact, the entirety of the Old Testament is filled with stories of God pursuing reunification with humanity. And then Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that pursuit. God putting on flesh, becoming human in order to restore the brokenness in our world. And I'm convinced that he does that through this practice of radical acceptance. So the story that we're going to look at this morning embodies this radical acceptance so beautifully. It's commonly called the woman caught in adultery. It's found in John chapter 8. So you can turn there. Eventually the verses will also be on the screen behind me when we dive in. This story is the latest one in our year of Bible stories for grown-ups. And we're working our way through some of the most well-known passages in Scripture with really the goal of interpreting them in ways that lead to Christ-likeness and healthy community and flourishing for absolutely everyone. Because we are convinced that is what God desires for all of us. And we're also doing this because so many of these stories have been interpreted in ways that have really hurt people or even driven them away from church or Christianity altogether. And I think this is certainly true of this specific story, particularly the last line, which says, go and sin no more. Not if you've heard that phrase, go and sin no more. Okay, I'll be honest, it triggers me a little bit. I hear it literally dozens of times each week on social media. I think it's one of the most kind of frequently weaponized quotes from Jesus in all of scripture. I want to read you some examples of things I hear all the time. Jesus wasn't inclusive towards sinners. He said, go and sin no more. No one is accepted by God until they follow his command to go and sin no more. And finally, stop telling people Jesus loves them unconditionally. He didn't tell them that. He told them to go and sin no more. So the question I want to answer today is, is that really what Jesus meant in this passage? Or is this another example of a Bible verse being twisted in ways that hurt people instead of help them, in ways that go against the will of God rather than further it? So let's find out. John chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it says this. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, stop here. This is an important part, right? The, there's no question about why this woman is brought to Jesus. John says it directly. A group of religious leaders are trying to trap him. Their goal is to get Jesus to say something that will discredit him in front of the eyes of huge crowds following him around. If you've been with us the last few weeks, I've been talking about this kind of moment in Jesus's life. This year or two is when he is kind of at his most popular, a celebrity of sorts, thousands of people flocking to the temple to hear him preach, following him around the countryside, listening to him. So Jesus, though, he was also a religious leader in his own right. So he was a colleague of sorts with the group of people that fling this woman down in front of him. This is important to know because the accounts of Jesus's life record numerous disagreements between Jesus and some religious leaders. And most of these disagreements center around how to interpret or understand the Jewish scriptures. 
what we now call the Old Testament. You see, Jesus was quite disruptive to the religious power structures of the time. Although he did often teach in the temple and synagogue as we see today, he also took his message to the people, so to speak, democratizing the faith. Jesus continually proclaimed the truth that all people are loved by God, not because of who they are or what they've done, but because they are God's children. And there wasn't anything that they could do to make God love them more or love them less. Now, although Jesus was committed to the law of Moses, for him, everything else was subordinate to this message of God's unconditional love and radical acceptance. And that's why the group of religious leaders phrased their question this way. Teacher, this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? For reference, they're not making anything up here. Here's what the law of Moses says. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So Jesus now has to choose between breaking the law of Moses or being a party to killing this woman. If he chooses the former, the religious leaders will say, we told you he wasn't really from God. He doesn't even obey God's laws. But if he chooses the latter, he will undermine this message of God's unconditional love and radical acceptance of all people embodied in this woman laying before him. So let's see what happens. Verse six. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. What a Jesus move, you know? And no one knows what he wrote. Some scholars think he was writing down the names of all the other adulterers present. That's probably my favorite one. Others think he was listing some of the sins of the religious leaders. All we know is he doesn't answer their question right off, right? Instead, he changes his posture. This is important. He changes his posture. He goes from standing to stooping. Now imagine the religious leaders are a little bewildered by this response, so they press forward. Verse seven, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. I love that little note. The oldest people were like, oh man, he's right. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. He stands up to respond to them, but after that, he goes right back down to kneeling next to this woman, stooping. Again, Jesus' posture here is vitally important. I imagine, and I'm sure all of you do too, that this woman was terrified, right? She thinks she's about to die. She is down on the ground, shaking in fear, tears probably running down her face, wetting the dirt around her. Jesus does not stand over her and debate her right to live with the religious leaders. How often do Christians, and especially like pastors and scholars and leaders, do stuff like that? Even when they're trying to do the right thing, you know? Even when they're trying to argue for somebody's existence or inclusion or something like that. They still stand over the vulnerable person and argue about them like they're a theological doctrine instead of a human being. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus stoops down to be with the woman in her pain and in her fear. His posture is one of care, one of advocacy, one of love. 
And for those of us who are more visual learners, I brought a picture of what it might have looked like. This is from the movie, The Son of God. I'll leave that up for a second. I love that picture. So these men that brought her to Jesus, they would have already had stones with them, ready to throw them as soon as Jesus gave the word. Jesus says, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, and they all walk away. I truly believe that this is one of the most powerful scenes in all of scripture. You have the religious leaders towering over this woman, holding stones in their hands next to Jesus, who is kneeling with her, holding her face in his hands. Then, as the men drop their stones and walk away, Jesus turns to her and says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No one, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Beautiful story, incredible story. But now we come to the crux of it, the way that I think it's most often misinterpreted. Jesus says, go and sin no more. This phrase is often twisted and the rest of the story ignored in order to make a point about God's judgment of sin and sinners. I can't tell you how many times I've heard things like, you know, quote, he may have kept them from killing her, but Jesus didn't just freely forgive her sin. She had to go and sin no more in order to be absolved. I'm always like, what? Did you even read the story? He freely forgives and absolves her sin. That's like exactly what he does in the story. And he broke the law of Moses in order to do it. I'm not making some outlandish theological claim here. This is quite literally what the story says. According to the law, she deserved death for adultery. Jesus prevents her death, sends her accusers away, and then freely removes all judgment from her, not because she deserves it, but because he desires it. Go and sin no more isn't a, a judgment, and it's obviously not meant as a threat of condemnation, right? Jesus just finished saying, I do not condemn you. Despite notions to the contrary, condemnation of humanity is explicitly not what Jesus put on flesh and came to earth to do. The most famous passage in the entire Bible tells us so. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This truth is further cemented at the very beginning of John's account when he uses the nickname Word for Jesus. Here's what he says. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling or home among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law, which called for the stoning of this woman, came through Moses, but grace and truth, meaning the proper understanding of who God is and what God is about, came through Jesus. And what has God been about since the very beginning of Adam, uh, the very beginning with Adam and Eve? Restoring his relationship with humanity through unconditional love and radical Acceptance. That's exactly what Jesus is embodying here. 
Yes, he tells her to go and sin no more, but notice that comes after he stoops down and offers her unconditional love and radical acceptance. So let me put it like this. Jesus didn't love sinners and embrace outcasts to make them acceptable to God. He did it to show them and everyone else that God had already accepted them. I'm gonna say that again. That's really important. Jesus did not love sinners and embrace outcasts to make them acceptable before God. He did it to show them and everyone else that God had already accepted them. Jesus was the embodiment of God's acceptance. And by leading with this acceptance, Jesus invites everyone to the table where they can have their needs met and experience the love that transforms. Then and only then does go and sin no more make sense. Because Jesus desperately wants this woman to leave behind the things that are hurting her. Not so he can love her, but because he already does love her. I firmly believe that God wants us to leave sin behind. Not because he's some legalist holding every human to an impossible moral standard or because he flies off the handle in anger every time we do something wrong. I think that God hates sin because sin hurts God's kids. And God hates to see God's kids get hurt. I love the way that Jonathan Merritt says it in his book. He says, God hates sin, not because God is an angry rule maker, but because God loves us without constraint. And God wants each of us to live the abundant life. God wants peace for us. God wants shalom for us. God wants us to flourish. He wants us to recognize the image of God in others and support their flourishing. And any force that resists the abundant life is called sin. And this is a force to which God stands opposed. Whether it's chosen by us or inflicted upon us, sin prevents flourishing. And God wants absolutely everyone to experience flourishing. But how do we do that? It starts by receiving God's radical acceptance and then allowing his unconditional love to transform us. We see Jesus model this truth throughout his life. Do you all remember Zacchaeus? Yeah, nod with me if you remember Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector who enriched himself by stealing from everyone else in his city. When Jesus goes into his city, he meets Zacchaeus and he offers this radical acceptance and unconditional love we've been talking about by telling him to come down out of that tree and that he wants to eat dinner at Zacchaeus' house that night. Not only that, he wants to stay the night at Zacchaeus' house. This incredible like covenant bond, this hated person in the community, Jesus says, host me for dinner and let me stay at your house demonstrating that Jesus was coming together in covenant with Zacchaeus, radical acceptance. Jesus never yells at Zacchaeus, never tells him to repent, doesn't say, stop stealing from people or I won't have dinner with you. And yet, how does Zacchaeus respond to the acceptance and love of Jesus? Luke 19, 8. Zacchaeus stood up. This is in the middle of dinner. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I, cheat, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. 
the radical acceptance and unconditional love of Jesus transformed Zacchaeus. Not a sermon, not a lecture, not a Bible verse, not a law. The presence of Jesus around Zacchaeus' table, the radical love and acceptance that he experienced like he'd never experienced before caused him to stand up in the middle of dinner and say, I'm leaving it all behind. I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm not gonna hurt people anymore. And if I've hurt anyone, I'm gonna pay them back four times as much as I owe them. And you know what? Anything that I have, I'm giving half of it to the poor. The radical acceptance and unconditional love of Jesus transformed Zacchaeus and he left those sinful practices behind. But my friends, love and acceptance always come first with Jesus. Paul puts it bluntly in his letter to the church in Rome, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us when we were still sinners. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have now received reconciliation. That rejection, that brokenness that had defined so much of our human existence is no more because of Jesus. Because Jesus came for us before we ever turned to him. Jesus accepted us and loved us before we ever loved him. And even though we rejected God, through Christ, God reconciled with us. I keep thinking about that picture I showed you a moment ago, one where the religious leaders are towering over the woman, holding stones in their hands, but Jesus is kneeling next to her, holding her face in his hands. I'm convinced this is God's posture toward all of us, toward all of humanity. Look at verse six again. I want to show you something. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Two different times, John tells us that Jesus stoops down. This posture from Jesus is not new. As I just said, this is the who God is and who God will always be. Our God is a God who stoops down. Even though he is the creator of the universe, even though it might seem undignified and scandalous, God consistently chooses to stoop down next to his kids. One of my very favorite quotes of all time is from the late Rachel Held Evans. She says it like this, God stoops from walking with Adam and Eve through the Garden of Eden to traveling with the liberated Hebrew slaves and a pillar of cloud and fire to slipping into flesh and eating, laughing, suffering, healing, weeping, and dying among us as a part of humanity. The God of scripture stoops and stoops and stoops and stoops. At the heart of the gospel message, is the story of a God who stoops to the point of death on a cross. Dignified or not, believable or not, ours is a God on perpetu perpetually on bended knee, doing everything it takes 
to convince stubborn and petulant children that they are seen and they are loved. From Adam and Eve to the woman caught in adultery to Zacchaeus to you and I on our very worst days, our God is perpetually on bended knee doing everything he can to help us see that we are accepted and that we are loved. There was only one person in the crowd that day without sin. One person who could have thrown the first stone. The only one who could have rightfully condemned her. But Jesus doesn't. He shows her that radical acceptance instead. And he doesn't tell her to go get herself cleaned up first. He accepts her just as she is, lying there in the dirt, overwhelmed by guilt and shame and fear. He accepts her. Listen, he does not accept some idealized future version of her where she is no longer an adulteress, where she has left all sin behind. He accepts her then and there as she lays. He doesn't say, go and sin no more and then come back and I'll make a decision about whether you can be a part of my family or not. Jesus loves her so much that no amount of sin or struggle can keep him from her. And my friends, I want you to know that the same thing is true for you. No matter who you are, what you've done, what your faith journey has been like, sin that you have chosen or sin that has been inflicted upon you, there is only one person who has the right to condemn you. And he has chosen not to. He has chosen to accept you, to forgive you, to love you without hesitation or qualification in your very worst moment, he would do it again. Even and especially at our lowest points, God stoops down, wipes the tears from our eyes and says, my child, there is no condemnation with me. I love you, I always have, and I will always be by your side. And these things that hurt you, I want you to leave them behind. But you don't have to do it alone. I'm here with you. There's people that'll step up and support you. I know that some of y'all are hearing this and you're struggling to believe it, like it, it might sound too good to be true. It might sound just so radically different from what you've heard about God. I don't know your story, but I I know mine. And I'm telling you, every single time I found myself down on the ground, God has stooped down next to me. Every single time things have fallen apart in my life, he's been there to help me pick up the pieces. Every single time I've been kicked out of something, he's been there waiting with open arms. I'll be honest with you though, sometimes I'm so upset or angry or just blinded by whatever's going on that I don't notice him at first. But every time I make an attempt to really look for God, I find him. Sometimes he shows up through the love of my family. You know, my kids running up to me when I get home from work or something like that. Other times he shows up through a friend reaching out to check on me. Maybe somebody I haven't heard from in a while or maybe somebody that checks on me every single day. 
I see God's love in that. God's shown up in meals dropped off at our house, handwritten notes left on my desk, DMs from strangers online saying this was helpful, thank you. Sometimes it's just a feeling, a presence deep down in my soul letting me know I'm not alone. But every time I felt rejected, God has accepted me. Every time I've been kicked out of something, he's been there to welcome me back in to his family. He almost never shows up the same way, but God always shows up. Just like he stooped down next to the woman that day, Jesus stoops down next to us every single time we need him. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to ask God to show up some kind of way. I want you to look for him. Maybe it's in one of those things I just listed, or maybe it's in a totally new and different thing. Maybe it's walking outside in nature. Maybe it's reading a book. Whatever it is, I want you to look for the love of God showing up all around you because I am so convinced, y'all, that that is who God is and what God does, constantly reminding us of how deeply loved we are and how welcomed into his family we are. Because like Rachel said, ours is a God perpetually stooped down on bended knee doing everything it takes to convince his children, to convince us that we are seen and that we are loved. Let's pray. Lord God, I am so grateful for stories like this for stories of unconditional love and radical acceptance, stories that even if they've been misinterpreted or twisted around, God, that when we open them, when we look at them, when we read them, your heart comes through so vividly and so beautifully. So I pray, God, that we would lean into that. We would lean into who you are, to how you treat us, to your desires for all of humanity. God, I pray that anytime we're falling down, anytime we are hurting and struggling, that we remember that you are God who stoops to be next to us. You are God who shows up in a million different ways, but you always show up. I pray that we would look for you and that we would find you in that. I pray that we would be the way you show up to our neighbors and our friends and our loved ones, even our enemies. That we would love the way that you love, that we would accept the way that you accept, that we would show up the way you show up. And that maybe we could be someone else's story of how you showed up in their lives. Because we listened and saw and loved and accepted like you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.